Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Every now and then you get an opportunity to break bread virtually and in reality with someone who is not only a groundbreaker, someone who's not only a game changer, somebody who is not only created ways of doing education that benefit kids all around the world. That person is also terribly grounded and humble and decent and funny. And I'm not talking about Adriano De Prado, I'm talking about the wonderful Daniel Sobel, the inclusion expert, one of the top people in the world for us to be talking with on Game Changers about the science of learning. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. With their strategic educational development program, they seek to identify and define strategy, structures and operations for a preferred future. They support the educational aspirations of each school community through the development of a high-performance culture. To find out more about how they can help your school, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you uh, uh, this evening here in glorious Melbourne. And... uh, for our guests playing at home, I'm looking at a man who's transformed. Uh, the, 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 the famous beard is gone. Phil, you, you're going to cost me a fortune in having to change our branding. Ah, look, you know, there, there are parts of my face that haven't been seen since the dark ages. The deforestation effort was considerable. I want to give a big shout out to the guys at Rosersmiths for their um, amazing work this afternoon. Um, whether it lasts, who knows? But for the moment, viva uh, zapata. I'm super excited about our guest, Daniel. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. What an introduction. I mean, you basically, it's impossible for anyone to live at that level. It's just disappointment from here onwards. Well, Daniel, look, I'm going to launch launch directly into our very first question, a question that we ask all of our Game Changers uh, guests, and that is, can you tell our audience a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today? An important part of my story is that I didn't complete school myself so I had a quite a tough time at school I had undiagnosed SEN and stuff going on at home and so in the end I didn't get in England we have A levels or uh, your high school diploma or whatever you call it so I didn't get any any anything like that but I did manage to uh, discover uh, reading after I left school so I read a book for the first time when I was about 18 And um, I kind of got into reading and research and I was fortunate to jump eventually in in my 20s, I was able to jump into a master's in education psychology. And I also did a master's in psychotherapy and I was doing a doctorate in psychotherapy as well. And I ran out of money. So I started teaching 
uh, and I became fairly quickly became what they call in England a special needs coordinator, which is somebody who's in, you know, who has responsibility in the school for children with different types of needs and, and, and also pastoral things. So social, emotional, mental health. And I innovated practices with my proud ADHD hat on. Uh, I wasn't going to do all the boring paperwork. So I sort of uh, shortcut through a lot of the bureaucracy, which inclusion for some reason has a huge amount of bureaucracy and paperwork and meetings and all those sorts of things. So I cut through a lot of those systems and I was asked to help a few other schools because I got some uh, recognition and some awards and I got asked to write a series for the Guardian newspaper here in England on inclusion and um, and to consult with the Ministry of Education and various other things which eventually led me to this point of thinking well I'd like to help schools full time and that was about nine years ago and then since then mainly through word of mouth we've uh, worked with about 10,000 schools and it's become like a whole like team and um, and now um, I, along the way, I wrote three books, which became uh, two of which were bestsellers. Although I think the one that wasn't a bestseller was, I think, my best book personally, but um, no one asked my opinion. Um, and then uh, so I give a lot of talks around and I recently um, convened an international organisation sort of bringing the idea of which is sort of sharing best practices and inclusion from all over the world. Um, we have about 80 countries or so signed up and um, we, my team and I, we run a, a master's program. Uh, we do training all over the world in inclusion. And uh, I've forgotten, forgotten what else I do. We um, support a lot of schools and we have programs in Russian and programs in the Middle East and I don't know, lots of things. So um, yeah, that's about, that's about the size of it. Uh, does that explain where I am? I don't know that, if it does. That definitely explains to, to our audience where you are today. But I'm really confident that our audience would really want to better understand your motivation to be in the place and the position that you are today. You touched upon briefly uh, that you didn't complete school. Can you perhaps just start at that point of what that schooling experience was like for you and what has motivated you post that experience to want to ensure that young people don't have a similar experience again in schools? So interestingly, I, I wrote my PhD on this idea and for me what I rooted it in was the idea of um, belonging. Um, I didn't really feel like I belonged in the in the school for a number of reasons. I mean there's um, the special educational needs bit of me, the bit of me that didn't feel, you know, that felt socially awkward, uh, the bit of me that didn't feel accepted so much as a, as a child in, in, in any sort of sort of place and feeling like an outsider. And I think there's a major advantage to being an outsider, especially in education. And I, I wonder if you, Adriana and Phil, can relate to the idea that somehow being in this liminal space, this sort of um, space in between, being on the one hand, we're part of education, but we're not, mm -hmm. is actually a very powerful place to be as a way of cajoling and supporting education to shift and to move. I, my experience of being a teacher within the system is that um, education's a very slow moving beast. It's um, a little bit like, I suppose, an oil tanker. It takes ages to turn around. And I think part of the reason is because you get very sensible traditional people who are teaching. They're not like the most, it doesn't attract, certainly school principals 
do not school principals generally are not the most um, maverick people. They're usually the most reliable people. And maverick and reliable don't necessarily go so hand in hand. Partly, I think, to be as creative as you, Phil, and Adriano, and myself to some extent, you have to be a bit wacky and a bit out, out there and really sort of pushing, willing to push boundaries. And actually, part of my outsiderness. I've, I've managed to harness that and to bring that into the world of education to really help push and to change. And it is motivated. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's motivated to try and help other children feel like they can belong in the classroom. But my place is in this sort of just outside of education pushing. And very much, Daniel, I mean, I, I very much see you as a, a, as a maven, you know, and you can only have that sort of role as an outsider. You can't do that from within. And I, and I have a feeling that our conversation today will largely be about this notion of being inside and out. You know, if we we're going to be theological, it's, you know, being, you know, in the world but not of it kind of thing and, and, and whether or not you can live in that space. And very much get that, that notion, too, of education as a slow-moving beast, you know, and that's very much uh, occupies uh, a place in, in, in our thinking about where we go and what we do. Um, we, we, we love our colleagues for their earnestness. And we, um, we, we encourage them to keep moving and keep moving forward and keep taking a big step forward and up. I believe that increasingly the evidence is there that the practices of inclusion are not peripheral but mainstream. And that if we think about the needs of every student, every student benefits from inclusive practice generally, but then also I think pretty much all students have episodes at least, if not a permanent need to be supported by inclusive practice. How can we do belonging properly in schools? That's a big question. I suppose we need to sort of think a little bit backwards, like what does belonging look like? Let's say we are in a state of belonging, right? What does that look like? Um, I suppose a child, if, you, if you're observing a child and you're trying to work out, I mean, apart from just going and asking them, but of course not all children are going to tell you, and of course it depends a bit on their age, uh, and they may not really relate to the question. It may not be something that is clearly articulatable, uh, but it's, a, it's possible that you could see a child who's engaged, who's in participating, who um, is interacting, um, who appears to be somehow satisfied to be there, uh, comfortable enough. Um, and so, and in their own way and over time making progress and so forth. So I think there are key characteristics of doing it. And then I think we need to just think backwards as to, well, what are some of the limiting factors? Let me raise perhaps a couple of factors which are less talked about and slightly uncomfortable because you know, somebody asked me recently, I was giving a, a talk at a national conference here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they said, um, what's the difference between inclusive teaching and outstanding teaching? Uh, to which I said, nothing. Out inclusive teaching is outstanding teaching, and you can't be an outstanding teacher if you're not inclusive. If all children in your classroom aren't me. Um, and they said, well, what's the point in the label? And then and I said, I don't really believe in labels. Um, I think it's all a big illusion. You know, and I articulated it like this, you know, that, well, you know, so good inclusive teaching is just good teaching, you know, so what you get to know the children and that you teach 
according to their needs and you meet their needs like how's that rocket science or how's that that complicated and how is that anything different that we need to call it a label well there are you know logistical economic reasons why we give labels because uh we can attribute finances and resources and things like that but that actually doesn't have anything to do with the art of pedagogy so that's the easy bit actually the inclusive classroom um you know my, called my latest book it's not hard it's it isn't it's not like we don't know how to include children with different types of needs and so forth it's really not that complicated part of the research that we've been doing over the past um supposed to be 12 months but 24 months due to COVID, it's been quite difficult to collect research from different schools. What we've been seeing increasingly um, is that we've got colleagues all over the world who are very earnest and very conscientious, who in their hearts hold their students, but they don't look for the agency of their students and they don't listen for the voice of their students. It's almost like, it's, it's, it's almost like a blindness almost or a, or a deafness because people are so focused on doing what they think is the right thing to do. How do we help teachers to listen for students and to recognise their agency? Um, that's a good question. I think broadly speaking, and this is a little bit, this is a little bit of a, uh, a, a broad assumption. So I took literally broadly speaking, that usually for the first 10 years, uh, a teacher is very much focused on themselves. And uh, after being in the profession for quite a, a while and getting sort of used to the mechanisms of, of the life of it all, eventually they can, they've kind of so got it uh, down that they can begin to think about the children. It's, you've got more headspace. I think that is a common feature of teachers all over the world. Um, ten years may be a long time. It could be five years. But um, the first few years of teaching, at least, you've kind of quite thinking about your own performance and then eventually you can begin to turn and focus very much on the children's which is not that they don't think about the children's performance at all for the first five years or 10 years or whatever it is that's not what I'm saying it's just that where the sort of it's that difference between I mean listening and hearing and seeing and not because you know students you know the, the teachers will tell you that they're student-centered in their approach and then when you go in and watch in their classrooms they're not listening they're not learning from the kids they're doing their thing so this is the thing that's intriguing me at the moment this is what i want to learn from you so how do we keep encouraging them uh, there's a really uncomfortable truth for us teachers and that is that our teacher attitudes has a huge impact on what the actual outcomes are meaning what we think of a child and what the child what our expectations of that child are will um have um, you'll see it in the data, certainly in national data, a certain certain groups of students you'll see um, achieving particularly um, highly um, or certain certain groups of students achieving particularly low. And it's um, uh, certain cultural issues that you'll see all over the world. This is a phenomenon. And so that very much has to do with teacher attitudes. And I'll just build on this a slightly uncomfortable scenario. You can have teachers who are you could have a teacher who sees a child as being in distress. Um, you can have another teacher who doesn't see a child who's in distress. They see that child as causing distress. And that, I think, is an indicator much more of teachers' personal capacities for emotional intelligence. And actually, most schools don't hire staff predicated on their emotional intelligence. They usually 
hiring staff predicated on this thing called teacher skill. Well, the most inclusive schools that I've come across prioritize emotional intelligence and they what they'll do is they will teach the teachers the new teachers how to teach to their standards because that's a skill right you can learn that mm -hmm. skill mm -hmm. emotional intelligence is something that is questionable to what extent you can really develop that and i think until we sort that problem out you know the idea that we could have teachers teaching children who might not necessarily be best disposed to be working with children or have the level of emotional or psychological intelligence to be able to understand children's needs. I don't mean in a cognitive way, but I just mean emotionally understand or have a capacity for empathy. Then I think uh, until we've sorted that problem, we have a bit of a problem that we can't really deal with. And I, I, I don't think this affects just Australia and England. I think this is all over the world. So this is a really interesting conversation that I'm listening to you and Phil have. I just want to push back on a little bit of something that you mentioned to one of his responses where uh, around the how question, how can we shift this? Uh, and you started off by saying that it starts with belonging, which I think Phil and I would absolutely agree on and most people would. But what I don't necessarily agree with is I don't know if that's the easy bit. The reason why I don't know or the reason why I'm not convinced that it's the easy bit is because it actually does require exactly what you've just been talking about then, and that is a deep consciousness of the other in terms of your emotional co competency and capacity. I wonder if every educator that walks into their classroom asks themselves the question, whose voice is missing, and what impact is the absence of that voice having on our understanding of this world? And that's what I'm talking about. about that's why I'm pushing back a little bit on that, because I don't know... I think, I think saying it, it's easy. I just don't know if it's being lived out in practice in a pronounced way that gives it more gravitas and value than a really nice diversity, equity and inclusion statement on a website. What I mean by that is this, Daniel, is every English department ensuring that the text that the young people are reading is inclusive of cultural diversity, people of colour, sexual orientation, ethnicity, religion, ability, et cetera? I would, I would probably argue that it's not. So then when, when I've got a diverse group of young people in a classroom in Australia or in the UK, and they will be diverse, they'll be from lots of cultural backgrounds because we have a very similarity in places like Melbourne and London have a lot of similarity in terms of the, 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 the multiculturalism of, 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 our, of our large metropolises. Is it diverse? In our context, is it embracing of our Indigenous people? And that's why I want to push back a bit about that because I reckon... In the absence of the belonging, which I fully agree with you on, and a commitment to identity agency, I think the pedagogy then becomes challenging because we're not really seeing the inherent need of that individual. What well, I'm I mean, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think what I tried to do is to demarcate two very different uh, drivers. One is yep. the actual art and the skill of the pedagogy, which sure. I think is not the hard bit. Like, for example, adjusting a curriculum or... Um, uh, you, you could do that in an afternoon. You, you, you know, you could just think, well, could, how could we make this a slightly more diverse curriculum? Uh, but um, how do you adjust teachers' um, attitudes? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, uh, how do I adjust my own attitudes? <laughs> I mean, it, we're dealing with, you know, very, very difficult subject, which it's, it's not, there's not an easy answer to that. And, and, and I'd, I'd suggest that this is an, an inherent issue. I, I just want to yeah. say one more thing is that um, your, your question is such a good one. I, my, my pushback on, against your question is that I tend to avoid 
dealing anything to do with cultural diversity, even though, of course, it does come into inclusion. And actually, interestingly enough, United States, if you mention inclusion, it kind of in, in, in inherently involves ethnicity, culture, background, all these sorts of things. Whereas I tend to deal with more like cognitive, neurological, sure. um, disability, social, emotional, mental health, that sort of stuff. Um, impoverished backgrounds. That's kind of my go-to. But let me just tell you one thing. And the reason why uh, at, the, at the beginning of my uh, latest book, I have a whole chapter on moving away from labels. And, uh, and there is a very practical reason for this. And because really I, I want teachers to be able to see children as individuals, mm -hmm. not as having an inherent label of some sort. Um, and so, for example, you could have three children with autism, but they present very differently in the classroom. You can have one was very quiet, one was very Absolutely. loud, one's very studious. You know, you can have you know very very different types, and calling them a label doesn't actually help the teacher. You could have three children with three different labels that present very similarly, so the labels is actually beginning to get in the way. And these are quite medical and psychological terms which aren't particularly helpful in the classroom. Now. I'm afraid to say that out loud about diversity and ethnicity and so on and so forth, because I think that quietly to myself, but I'm, I don't feel confident to be able to say it, you know, well, I, I want to sort of ditch the idea of culture, background, da, 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 da. I want everyone to just be an individual, right? Um, but the way that that can come across is, uh, and, and, and even to myself, so that's why I sort of doubt it, which I don't really talk about it. Um, is it's almost like um, easy for me to sort of deny culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, I'm just trying to whitewash everything. I, I deal with that by simply avoiding the question. <laughs> I think, I, and that's me just being a chicken. Like, I, I don't feel like I have the mental capacity to be able to handle right. the, the current issues around ethnic and cultural sure. background. So let, I'll, uh, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll go down the line of, of what you're sharing with us, because when I think of issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, I include the word ability in that. Uh, and when I refer to ability, I'm talking about cognitive ability or physical ability and so on. So I think we're on the, I think we're actually on the same page here uh, in, in, in that kind of space. But that's your wheelhouse. That's the work that you do and have been passionate about uh, for, for quite some time now in, in trying to change the narrative uh, around neurodivergent individuals through awareness, through education, through engagement, and the work that you continue to do, uh, you know, in, in, in empowering educators to better understand that in their classroom is this spectrum of learners, and each of them are having uh, have inherent needs, and they also have inherent possibilities and strengths. And strengths, absolutely. Just by the way, the neurodivergent of us, which I include ADHD, yeah, and autism and dyslexia, we run the world. Yeah, we're the innovators, the professors, you know, the creators, the CEOs. We run the world. It's a neurodivergent world that we allow the non-neurodivergents to participate in. Carry on. Uh, I, love, I love that. I love that. I feel like keep going. Keep going. Let's keep going. meaning to me, always advocating for more divergent thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Keep going, boys. Keep going. So, so okay. So let's let's run with this. We've had the pleasure of having different guests on Game Changers around this exact topic. And in Australia, there has been a movement for quite some time now in building the capacity of the adults, 
within schools to better cater for the inherent strengths of all learners that sit in front of them, irrespective of their cognitive diagnosis. Can you explain to our listeners what then does an inclusive education look like in practice? I, I want to start here, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I always start here, yeah. which is the point about, you know, I would show you a picture of, um, I just, just before we were talking, I was giving a lecture to uh, a few hundred teachers in the Philippines. And I showed them a picture of three people with Down syndrome. And what they all have in common, apart from Down syndrome, is they all got a university degree. And then I showed them another picture of a man who is um, just climbed Everest and he has no natural born legs. So just very practically, there is a re-shifting of what our expectations could be. I'm not suggesting that all children with Down syndrome are gonna go on to do a degree. But at some point, if you realize the reason why they went on to do a degree at university is because there were teachers who were willing to change their views as to what was expected of them. So the, the first thing is that we shift the expectations. The second is we think about their strengths and we foster independence. So what that looks like is they participate in the classroom and we give them ways of doing it. And that could be that we give them a question to ask, you know, before they, uh, before the lesson starts, that they can raise their hands and ask that question. It could be, so we're looking for moments of participation. We're looking for them to have a role in the classroom. We're looking for them to feel like when there is group work, that they can actually participate effectively in the class. That could require a little bit of, um, of training uh, for peers to be able to include them effectively in that group learning. Um, so we're looking at the key word of participation and engagement and tracking that throughout the classroom. So from the moment that they walk in, um, how do they feel in the classroom when they walk in? Um, do they have the equipment? I, I was a classic student who never had the equipment, right? So do they have the equipment? Um, if not, could you just give them the equipment? You know, perhaps give them a role in the classroom of handing something out or doing something. These are little things, tiny little things. And I would describe these as throughout my uh, book as tweaks, uh, tweaks to do little things that can foster a sense of uh, belonging through participation and engagement, a continuous so, process of engagement. So these learners feel that they're seen, they feel that they're valued. Yes. Now, this is the important bit um, that I think is, I mean, in a way, I think my life's work, which is being able to do that in a way that doesn't further stress out teachers who are already super stressed and busy. Um, and I think actually the biggest barrier to inclusion, apart from attitudes and emotional intelligence, is the fact that we have a system whereby teachers are overburdened. Um, already and what inclusion usually means for teachers is we're asking them to do yet more and 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 therefore all of the solutions which are long-term and sustainable have to come in the shape of things which take less time and less money rather than more time and more money yeah but everything you've just shared with our listeners and phil and i in your response to my question about what it looks like in practice are approaches that would bring value to every learner in that classroom yeah, sure. And so my argument no. then would my argument then would be I'm not hearing uh, the inclusion ex expert from the UK, Daniel Sobel, advocate for additional workload of, of a teacher, but an awareness that if we approach it in a particular way, every learner in that classroom 
gets an opportunity for real growth and real achievement based on their inherent possibility and their strengths. Yeah, and I'll go as far as to say it takes less time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the latest, uh, this book, which is, I'm very pleased was trending number one on Amazon. And I, it, I have to say, the reason why I'm saying that is because I'm just very pleased that some of the ideas are out there. But I co-authored it with someone who I think is a real expert in the classroom pedagogy bit. That was never really my area of expertise. I was always very good at the stuff that happens outside of the classroom, right? So some of my first two books were all about, you know, managing the whole school system of inclusion and so on. Um, but actually where the magic happens, I mean, beyond any um, initiative that you can buy, you know, off the shelf purchase of some sort of, you know, intervention or some kind of program or special this or special that or some sort of trip or extra people you have or specialists or whatever, 90% of it is just, you know, good, simple teaching that is all about individuals. And I believe that the art or the act of, um, of that style of pedagogy is basically a lot easier to do um, than the kind of pedagogy which is trying to keep full control and teaching to the middle and, you know, the sort of Victorian style teaching. It, I don't think I'm presenting a solution that is harder. I'm presenting a solution that overall is easier. And yes, it's just teaching. I hope that in 50 years time, we will look back and think, what do you mean inclusive teaching? Or you just mean teaching? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's highly, it's, it's a lot more personalized because it's not standardized. And it's, the interesting thing in my experience about standardization over the years and teaching to the middle is it brings your top students down and doesn't really raise the bottom ones up all that much anyway. Uh, you know, it's ge generalization I'm making there. Obviously, that's not always the case, but there's real value in the, in, in the personalization. One of our challenges, though, in this space is to help shift the adults' assumptions that they bring in to the classroom about all of their learners. You touched upon earlier about the role of emotional intelligence and their, their competency in that space. What else do you think we could be doing in support of these adults to help them bring less prejudice to the classroom? So let me describe to you, in answer to that question, just very practically, a school that I went to see. We were working with... Um, 400 schools across uh, Wales. I don't mean New South Wales, I mean the original. Uh, so <laughs> it was a very interesting to, to go and visit one school, which is uh, the most highly achieved U United Kingdom school for uh, as a mixed school. So a mixed ability school, meaning they have children from, you know, um, all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds and special educational needs and children are particularly vulnerable, looked after and so on and so forth. And so it's a big mix of a school, but they overall have the highest performance of all different types of groups of students. The question is why? So let me just describe for you what happened there uh, when I went to look at it. Firstly, they, they, uh, they do have this interview style where they're looking for the emotional intelligence bit. But there are two standard questions which they have of the senior leadership team discuss. One is how can we reduce the staff burden? And number two is how are our staff? How are they? And they also put together a support package. So care of staff is very much at the heart of all, all of the school's thinking. It's in, in a way the well-being of staff. And they have a well-being package for staff, which is, I mean, it's, you've never heard anything like it. It's um, anything from getting their car valeted once a month and you can bring in your uh, ironing 
once a week you can uh, get uh, free yoga and counseling and um, all different types of like a very very long package would be too boring to just list off the whole things I've forgotten the whole list anyway but it's a very 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 long list of things I went along with another school principal of a similar size school it's a big school like 2000 students and um, her school was a very low performing school and she said well we could never afford this and I said well how much money are you spending on teacher absence how much money are you spending on you know, hiring new staff. I mean, how, how, many, how many staff do you think they need to hire a year? Well, it's probably hire one member of staff every five years because everyone wants to teach there, right? And then once you're there, everyone wants to stay there. It's uh, an amazing place to be. And I think that kind of, it, it, that, that is nurturing staff in a way that, you know, we, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's actually quite obvious, you know, like you, you nurture your staff and in return, they will take care of your children. I think in a way that's not kind of rocket science, but that's certainly not the way that we mainly set up schools to be. What we tend to do is to whip, whip teachers into submission, get them to do things, drive them to work really, really hard, have overburdening expectations, which are laden with guilt and so on and so forth. All of that is um, painful. And I think it's that that has to shift um, along with the very basic skills of you know, inclusive, you know teaching um, will change the environment of the school i can't believe any teacher uh, listening to this would disagree with that where you will get disagreement is uh, in senior leadership teams partly again this is part of the idea because we have an idea of what a senior leader needs to be and how they need to act and what they should be doing right and um, the idea of doing something so maverick is frankly very scary yeah. daniel you have an enormous amount of professional energy where does that come from? Have you always have you always had that? I mean, I, I I find the range of stuff that you do absolutely inspiring. You know, you lead nine masters programs, you write books, you write articles all over the place. Where, where does that come from? Where does that sense of purpose come from? You mean the the fire that's up my ass? Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it's interesting you say that because my self perception is that I'm a very unprofessional person. Uh, you know, I wear my t shirt. Uh, everywhere um, and if I possibly you know <laughs> I've spoken for parliament from my car in my t-shirt and uh, was made sure to swear quite a bit uh, like I, I don't think of myself as a professional and b because of my ADHD um, I have a very spiky profile so what I'll do is you know I'll sort of laze on the couch for maybe two days even though I'm supposed to be running two organizations uh, but then I'll go into a really super hyper-focused um, space where in that hyper-focused space, I can achieve a lot. It's not what I would describe as, um, as very professional. In fact, if anything, probably a professional nightmare for most people. Yeah, I'd describe you as professionally atypical. I wouldn't describe you as unprofessional in the slightest. One of the things that uh, strikes me about your approach to yourself and your work is that you have a very, very high degree of self-awareness. When we look at our colleagues in the profession, the one thing that they'll tell us that they don't have the time to do is to stop, to reflect, to think about where they are, to draw those connections to what you would, would see as obvious. They find that really, really difficult to do. How can we help encourage um, colleagues in the profession to stop, step back, look at what's going on, see, listen, hear, and act? 
there is a, it's a very very interesting question uh i think that there's something i don't know if you agree with this but my sense is that people in schools don't realize they're working in an organization they think they're working in a school and actually an organization of any different shape or size is subject to the usual limitations and constraints and vistas of of an organizational psychology of sorts and in it's very common um, for people in who are ceos for example chief executive officers or, or heads of organizations it's very normal at least in england and in america and i'm not sure if this is really true in australia you have to tell me it's very normal for for a ceo to take time out of the organization to reflect on it, let's say once a month and possibly meet up with a coach. And you, it's called working on the business or working on the organization rather, rather than working in it. And therein lies all of the real answers. You may think that's a luxury. I don't, I think that's a necessity. And the working on is actually the trick to the evolution of um, how you structure and where you put your priorities. Yeah. When I describe myself as lying on the couch, I've come to realize that's me actually working on. That's me reflecting on or taking time out. I'm not suggesting everyone should do that. That's just a particular personal method. But, um, but I, I yes. think yes. The, the root of it is thinking, well, we're in a school. This is how we've always done things. And this is how things get done. Whereas actually um, where innovation begins is when you see if you step out and say, hang on, we're just an organization here and we all are cogs in a certain type of wheel. How can we oil this wheel? Uh, how can we shift the cogs a little bit? That's when, that's when you open the door to sort of reshuffling and rethinking. Again, that's easier for you and I to have this conversation because we've already stepped out. We're reflecting on already. This whole conversation is a reflective piece. Yeah, this, this, whole, this whole podcast is all about reflection. It's all about a process. Daniel, one final question for you from me before my um, art teacher friend who always tells me to take Mondays off and work on the business rather than in the business um, will wrap up for us. Increasingly, Adriano and I are seeing that the science of learning is not about importing more content of pedagogy and curriculum and approaches and so on and dumping it on teachers so much as a process, a scientific process that we apply to our own learning about what works and what doesn't work. If you could take teacher training and ongoing professional development and apply one big change to it, what would that change be? Well, my cheesy answer is, you know, you know, read my books and do my courses and, <laughs> and so on. That's my cheesy of answer. Of course, of course, but, of course. Um, well, if I may take a slightly longer term view of this and think that where I think the evolution of teaching um, will need to go eventually is understanding two things which we don't have at the moment as a major focus. One is the the... I would describe as the art, we can say the science, if you like, of the relationship between the older adult uh, human and the younger human. There, the mechanism of relationship is the causal factor of, of different types of learning. But generally, teachers don't study that. It's not, a, it's not an area of study. It sounds like too esoteric or too, you know, niche. But actually, it's in every class. It's in every moment of learning. And I think that is an area which um, I would like to see 
more of and I think would contribute hugely to the world of pedagogy. And as a subset of that, um, I would uh, look at other different psychological aspects of the experience of learning and teaching. Um, so we've talked about the organizational psychology, but also the psychology of the learning experience. Most teachers haven't got a clue about how the brain works. And I'm not suggesting everyone becomes a neurologist or a neuroscientist, but just an awareness of the kind of things that trigger the brain. So I think uh, I would guess that in 50 years from now, uh, or 100 years from now, we will reflect on this time and think, gosh, you know, they, you know, these two things were like completely absent uh, for, for a lot of um, people. But it's certainly where I think the frontiers of research are at the moment. Yeah, uh, th thank you for sharing that response. I mean, I don't want to embarrass my esteemed colleague, but I'm sure he would call a lot of that character apprenticeship uh, that's being fostered between the adult and the student. And then the adult can become the novice as, as well, depending on you know, the respirosity that goes on in the strength of that, of that relationship. If, if it's one that, that is open to co-construction, of the learning as opposed to just uh, uh, one way of doing it. Daniel, you're one of the UK's most prolific and acclaimed thinkers, right? You, in this space of, of inclusive education, so many best-selling books, narrowing the attainment gap, leading on pastoral care, the inclusive classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I could go on, but we're nearly out of time. So much of the, those books are born from the fire that burns inside of you about a lived experience that you had that you never want to have replicated for another young person, uh, 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 you know, that enters any educational setting or learning in their life, that we, we treat people with their inherent dignity, we see them, their value, their strengths, their identity, and we help them leverage that possibility. What I'm interested in, and my final question to you, is that so much of what you do is now for the other the empowerment of young people, the empowerment of the adults that support them. How do you see yourself evolving as a person and as an educator? Perhaps by means of, firstly, thank you for your overly kind words. Um, I just think of myself as another bozo on the bus. Um, and especially as I'm quite deeply rooted in being anti-hierarchical, so I don't really see myself as uh, anything special at all. Uh, but I appreciate your very, very generous and kind words. Thank you. Just by means of, I think as a sort of disclosure, really, um, I, nine years ago, I left uh, the school having a genuine sort of quite deep rooted expertise in, um, in, in the activities of the school. And I think that over time, and since I've become more and more absent from the school, even though I visited hundreds of schools since, um, but nonetheless, I'm... I think my area of expertise is evolving or changing or shifting away. You know, like I'm no longer, you know, when was, when's the last time I taught a class? I mean, I, I lecture every day, but when was the last time I taught a class of children? When was the last time I was a school leader? And I think that my area of expertise in those matters are sort of waning and my areas of expertise in, um, in other areas. So for example, leading an educational consultancy with lots of schools. Well, I've, I've actually got, you know, nine years of that under my belt. You know, I have some idea of what that looks like or how to advocate with ministries of education or how to navigate UNESCO or whatever. Those sorts of things are areas of expertise, which I think that I have, how to run large scale programs with, with teachers. So I think that's how I'm evolving, but I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that I, I can no longer hand on heart call myself like a classroom teacher, even though in my heart I am. So I think that's a sort of, um, a sort of 
a brutal reality of the path which I've taken. And um, I have to sort of, um, I think it's a natural evolution to sort of stepping towards sort of being much more university based in the end. Um, and also working with people who are working with people in schools rather than me directly doing it. I, 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 I kind of hear myself saying it and I regret it a little bit. And actually somebody said to me last night, he said, why don't you just teach once a week? I said, well, you know, I think that would be very nice to return back to the classroom within the next five years. Um, you know, once a week, that would be lovely. Well, that might be part of the evolution, Daniel. Yeah. We're going to finish up here at that particular point. Thank you for, for sharing with Phil and I so much about yourself and what has brought you to this point uh, about this passion that continues to burn so deeply inside of you. I was going to say a couple of additional words to wrap it up, but then I found this quote by a gentleman named Daniel Sobel from the UK. I love him. He's not bad. He's not bad. He's not bad at all. And uh, he said this, I have a vision of a new era in inclusion beyond labels where we all share both common humanity and a unique individuality. I mean, if we are to reimagine education, there's no greater aspiration than our common humanity and, and the recognition of our unique individuality. Daniel Sobel, it has been an absolute joy to have you on Game Changers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.